How about that? Turn to Mark chapter 12, please, as we will continue walking through God's precious word. We'll be picking up in verse 13. The tax against Christ have escalated. The evil forces have come together, and they are doing everything in their power to put an end to Jesus and his teaching. We're still in the Passion Week. Christ has come to town. He, he puts a curse on the fig tree for not producing fruit. He cleanses the, tem- the temple, and the same judgment is put upon the temple as the religious esta- and the religious establishment for not producing fruit. We have seen the, the Sanhedrin, the, the governing body that, make, that is made up of chief priests, scribes, and elders. Uh, we have seen that most of these men who have rejected Christ has, has attacked uh, Christ and questioned his authority. And after being completely humiliated in front of everyone in the temple for not being able to answer or refusing to answer the simple question that was put before them, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? They refused the answer and they walked away. Why? Because they did not want to submit to the authority of Christ. So they remained silent. But that did not stop the, them from continuing their attack on Christ. They, they think they are smarter than the Almighty. They believe they can trap him. But they end up, you know, they, they keep getting caught in their own trap, as we have seen, and that continues to be a, a pattern of theirs. So right after they confront Christ on his authority, Jesus continued to teach, and he rolled right into the parable about the vineyard and the rejection of the beloved son. And again, we saw Jesus in his masterful teaching brings the ones who were confronting him right into the story, so much so that they ended up pronouncing judgment on themselves. We saw that when Jesus asked them, what should the owner of the vineyard do? If you remember, they quickly answered. They said, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. They said with their own mouth what should actually happen to them and what will happen to them because they were all guilty of doing what the tenants had done in the parable that Jesus told. They were the ones, Israel were the ones who beat and killed the prophets that God had sent over the years. And the ones standing before him that day would be the ones who would end up killing the beloved son that God himself had sent. And so Jesus says to them, I love how he ends it. He says, have you not read? Have you not read? You know, you're the ones that claims to know all the scriptures. Have you not read? And Jesus quotes Psalm 18. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Sanhedrin knew this scripture. They knew that the stone was a well-known symbol for the Messiah. And here they are living out the scripture that Christ quoted to them. They are rejecting the stone. They are rejecting the Messiah. They are rejecting the Savior of the world. They are rejecting the beloved Son that God had sent. They rejected the stone that would become the cornerstone. And last week we talked about that cornerstone. We we asked the question, the, the cornerstone of what? The cornerstone of what? And we saw that Jesus is the cornerstone of the unending kingdom of God, the everlasting kingdom of God. The accusers didn't get that on that day. They did not see that Jesus came to this earth as king. 
He came to inaugurate an unending kingdom that would be built on him and his teaching. Jesus brought in a spiritual kingdom. And so Jesus is the perfect cornerstone of a brand new building, and that's the, Christ, the Christian church, a brand new temple, his people. Jesus' life and teaching is the church's foundation. He's the perfect cornerstone. And I asked you last week to write these verses in, the, in your margins, and I'm going to say them again because these are such beautiful verses. These words of God gives us peace. They give us comfort because through his word, we can see that he is in control. And, and not only that, it also gives us confirmation that he has called each one of us to be part of his kingdom. Ephesians 2.18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself, listen, being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 1 Peter 2.4 also says, As you come to him, who are you? You are a living stone. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And you, it says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, God says, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Those are beautiful words. I love to read them, and I love to proclaim them. So I say again, Jesus is the perfect cornerstone who came to this earth as king to inaugurate an unending kingdom, and that unending kingdom is built on him and his teaching. Amen? Verse 12, And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. So Jesus tells the parable. What do they do? They, they, if you remember what happened last week, you know, what did they do? They, they knew this parable was about them. What do we say about this parable? It was not like one uh, of the others that where it hid the truth, but one that revealed the truth. This is a parable that everyone there could understand. And the Sanhedrin, they, they understood it. They, they understood it to be about them and against them. And what was their reaction? What did they do? What did they do with the truth that God gave them? They got mad. I've seen it happen many times. They got mad. Their, their anger continued to grow. The urgency to kill Christ grows. They are so ready to take him out. They are so ready to get rid of this teacher. But once again, because of the people, as we see here, because of the ones who were hanging on who were hanging on to every word that Jesus spoke, they decided to leave Jesus. Why? They didn't want to start a riot. So they left him. They went away. They had to regroup. So they came up with another plan on how to stop Jesus and his teaching. And it brings us to verse 13. Now, as we come into this section here in verse 13, 
and, and through uh, 44, we'll see that uh, the, the Sanhedrins continue their attacks on Jesus, and they keep coming up with a new plan. And we know the Sanhedrins are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, and, and some elders. They're the, they're the religious leaders at that time. And as we move through this text, take note, beginning with the story that we're going to study today, that each one of these groups puts Jesus to the test. The Pharisees, they, they question Jesus on taxation, verses 13 through 17. Then the Sadducees will come, and they question Jesus on the resurrection, verses 18 through 27. And then they send in the scribes who question Jesus on spiritual interpretation, verses 28 through 44. All trying to set a trap. All three groups step up to bat. All three swing and a miss. Swing and a miss. And they all strike out in the end. So let's dig in. Let's begin with the Pharisees and their unlikely friends. Verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and, and they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. So here comes the Pharisees and the Herodians up the bat. They've been waiting for a while for this most opportune time. They think now is the time that they will get him. Uh, now, these, these, these two groups, are. Uh, this is a strange group of bedfellows here. Luke tells us that this group of uh, men were spies who pretended to be righteous. They got the walk. They got the talk. They got the special clothes, all to make them appear to be righteous. They wanted to, be, they wanted to appear as ministers of God. They, they, they want to appear as stewards of the divine truth. They want to appear as as, as Faithful shepherds of Israel desiring to know the truth. And so they put on their religious acts, their act, and they approach Jesus. Now we have to understand their technique and why they are coming at Jesus about taxes. So even though they hate taxes, that, that, that's not the reason they want to get rid of Jesus. Why do the Pharisees want to get rid of Jesus? It's because of his theology, because of his teaching, Right? They don't, they don't like it. But remember, they, they can't do that. They can't do it that way. They can't take him out because of his teaching. Why? What did we just read? Because of the people. The people would start a riot. And so they, they don't want, if they started a riot, then the Roman government would come down on them. But what they do want, they want the Romans to arrest and crucify Christ. And they knew that Rome would not arrest Christ because of his theology. They don't care about that. The Roman government didn't care about that. They had the freedom to do that. The only way the Romans would arrest and kill Jesus would be for what? His political views. So the Pharisees team up with the Herodians. What an odd team. The Pharisees were a religious group opposed to the Roman occupation of Palestine. The Pharisees hated Rome. 
And here comes the Herodians, who were a political party that supported the Herod family and, and the policies instituted by Rome. They, they, were in, they liked Rome. Now, these two groups were diametrically opposed in their belief. They had nothing to do with each other until now. They have one thing in common. They both wanted to get rid of Jesus. The Herodians thought that Christ would bring an uprising, and then Rome would come in and crush everything. You know, the Pharisees just wanted to get rid of him because of his theology. So with this team that they've made up, they, they feel as if they can make Jesus make a political statement that the Romans would view as an open rebellion. That's their goal. And then Rome would take him out. That's the plan. Make the Roman government arrest Jesus. So the Herodians are ready. If they can make Jesus sound like he's anti-Roman, if, he, if they can make him say something against Caesar, then they, could, they would go straight to the Romans and report Jesus, and the Romans would then arrest him and deal with him, and they wouldn't have to. That's the plan. Get Jesus arrested. There's another reason why, why, the Romans, why they want the Romans to arrest Jesus. One, you know, they don't want to start a riot. Two, if Jesus is arrested, then the people... The ones who had been following him would fade away. Now, why do the people, why do, why do they believe that the people would not follow Jesus if he got arrested? Well, because, what, what kind of Messiah are the people looking for? They're looking for that political Messiah, right? One that could take away the ruling power from Rome. They were looking for that military Messiah, one that could crush the Roman army. And so if Jesus was to get arrested by the Romans, then Jesus would not be either one. He would not be a political uh, uh, messiah nor a military messiah. If he gets arrested, he's lost his power. So he's not who they thought he was, and they wouldn't follow him anymore. And as we see in the scriptures, we see that what they believed would happen did happen. When Christ got arrested, everyone abandoned him. They left him. So the attackers believe that they have a trap set for Jesus, one that, would, that he would not be able to get out of. They believe that Jesus would condemn himself with his own words when he answers the question they are going to ask him. So they come up to him to trap him in his talk, to make him out to be a false teacher who was against Rome. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true. And do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Look, you're setting the trap. They come up, oh, you're so true. Oh, you care nothing about anyone's opinion. You're amazing, Jesus. You're not swayed by appearances. You speak the truth no matter where you are. You are amazing. And the big one, you truly teach the way of God which we know they didn't believe in their heart. Do you think their hearts are in the right place when they said all of this? Well, sure not. We know their motives. So does Christ. But take notice. Despite the insincerity of the Pharisees and the Herodians, everything they said was a true statement. All they said was absolutely true about Christ. But they left out one important point about Christ. One thing that they did not consider is that they didn't say that you are not influenced by flattery. <laughs> Definition of flattery, false praise. 
commendation bestowed for the, for the purpose of gaining favor and influence or to accomplish some, some purpose. Their flattery was just exposed. The insinc insincerity of the hearts of the ones questioning Jesus was exposed. Jesus did not buy into their flattery. Look, he didn't even say, hey, you know what? You, what you just said is absolutely true. He didn't even, he didn't even comment on it. <clears throat> he didn't respond in any way because Jesus knows the heart, something they should have known by now. Jesus recognizes their motives with their, with their flattery and questions. He's not fooled. Listen, if, <clears throat> if they really believed what they just said about Jesus, if they really believed those statements that they said, then they would have already become followers of Jesus. If they really believed what they said, they would, become, they would have become followers of Jesus. But instead, they are falsely pursuing the truth. They don't really want to get the truth out of Jesus, even though they just stated the truth about Jesus. They just wanted to discredit the truth. A couple things to make note of here. Anytime someone who, who does not believe in Christ comes to you and wants to argue about Jesus, who, who wants to argue about some truth in Scripture, you know, walk away. Don't fall into that trap. It's a trap. Don't fall into it. You, you can very quickly know if someone, if someone wants to know the truth or not. For the ones who do want to know the truth, they ask the questions in such a way that, that, that you know that they want to know more. You can tell. They're not argumentative. They want to understand the truth about God. You, you, you see the hunger in their hearts. You can very quickly tell if the Spirit of God is working in the heart of that person. You know, I taught a class years back. It was called Sharing Jesus Without Fear. And I, I still remember this is, this is a good way to do it. You would go to ask a person what they thought about Jesus and who Jesus is. And if they were wrong, you would ask them, say, if what you believe is not true, would you like to know the truth about Jesus? And if they say no, your work's done. Walk away. Don't fall into the trap. But if they say yes then you know the Spirit is working in them. Share the Word of God with them. Feed them the truth. That's how it's done. That's how it's done. Don't fall into the trap, but feed the ones who really want to know. Jesus was not taken in by their flattery. What does the Word say about his response? Verse 15, But knowing their hypocrisy, which knows no bounds, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Why are you trying to trap me, he says. He sees right through their unbelief. I don't, I don't think they even heard those words when he spoke. Their hatred had made them so blind. They just wanted to answer to their question. They heard nothing about the test. They didn't hear that. So they, so they quick get, answer this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? I'm sitting there wondering how my mind goes. You know, I'm wondering about, did they have a poker face on when they said this? You know, how good was their game? How good? Were they, were they just, you know, about to explode as they said it, as they're waiting for that answer? I don't know. But I wonder how good their game was. Again, they believe they have a trap set for Jesus. You know they're excited. Their heart's racing. They think they've got him. And why do they think they have him? 
Well, well, listen, if, if Jesus supported the tax, if he said pay the tax, that would discredit him in the eyes of the people. They hate the tax. But if he refuses to pay the tax, then that would bring the Roman government down on him. They believe they have a win-win situation. They, they thought he was in a trap, an inescapable trap, one he could not get, up, get out of. They're, they're thinking, we've got him. And I know they're, they're just shaking in their shoes waiting for that answer. They, they saw, also think about this, they saw the answer to their question as easy as yes or no. They, they don't want to hear anything else. The answer on whether it is lawful to pay taxes, Jesus, yes or no. Just answer the question, Jesus. Just give us the answer. We're ready to move on to our next stage of the plan to destroy you. Yes or no, Jesus. Jesus grants their wish. He does. He, he makes it that simple. He gives them a direct answer to their question. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one, and he said to them, whose likeness is on an inscription is this? They said to Caesar. They said Caesar's. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and the things that are God's, and to, th and to God the things that are God's. What the attackers saw as an impossible conflict, Jesus messed him up when he described parallel duties. They were not <laughs> expecting that. They, they, they presented Jesus with a question that, that they were sure would trap him no matter how he answered. But as we see, they were snared by their own trap again. What does Jesus say? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. These people were ready for battle. How do we know? Because a Jew in that day did not walk around with a denarius in their pocket or in their shoe or, or satchel or wherever they carried their money. I don't know. They despised that coinage. Why did they despise the coinage? Well, the text tells us that they brought him one. He says, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said Caesar's. That's important to know. Know this. The tax was not hated by the people because of its amount. The, the tax was only like one day's salary. The Jews hated this tax because it was a symbol of foreign uh, domination. Not denomination. <laughs> foreign domination. <laughs> and, and, because, and because it had to be paid, this tax had to be paid with a coin that bore an image of the emperor and an offensive inscription. You see, the coin, the Roman coin was minted by the emperor and had his image stamped on it. And it was actually considered to be his personal property even while it was in circulation. So the coin they handed Jesus is a Roman coin minted in silver by Rome's emperors. And on one side, on the front of the coin, it said Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So Augustus claimed to be God. Tiberius, Augustus' son, was the son of God. If you flip the coin over, it had a picture of Livia in it, the mother of Tiberius, and it, and it would be inscribed Pontifus Maximus, a pagan title. So this coin, watch this. Augusta had minted, minted coins in 17 B.C. He identified himself as God. Tiberius designated himself as son of the divine and as the high priest, Pontifus Maximus. 
So you could not have minted a coin that could have been more offensive to the Jews than the one they had in their hands. In the minds of the Jews, this coin, these coins were little idols. They, they saw them as graven images, and it violated Exodus 20, the second command, you shall have no graven images. They, they saw them as little idols. They wouldn't carry them with them. They didn't have them in their pockets. They wouldn't use them. They, they would even try to pay the Roman tax in, in the equivalently, uh, and in, equivalently uh, in their own Hebrew coinage. They hated this coin. But they had one that day. <laughs> they had one in the temple that day. They were sure that when Jesus laid his eyes on that coin and read the words that he would have said, blasphemy. And they were hoping that Jesus would denounce the coinage and thereby denounce Caesar himself and thus get arrested. So they have the bait in Jesus's hand. Can you picture Jesus holding that coin, maybe flipping it back and forth, looking at both sides? Complete silence in the courtyard, besides the ones breathing very heavy that are excited. Complete silence in the courtyard as, as they're all waiting for that trap door to slam shut. If Jesus would just answer the question. But Jesus asked, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That's it, right there. Caught you. Hurry, get out to the presses. Let the people know that Jesus said, pay the taxes. Jesus answered their question about taxes with a very simple answer. Yes, pay the taxes. The Pharisees and the Heronians must have been grinning from ear to ear. They've got Jesus to answer the question. They've got the answer they're looking for. Bam, the trap door is shut. They're ready to celebrate. But wait, there's more, folks. As they started to run out to celebrate, as they head out to proclaim the news, wait, stop the presses. Jesus is not done. He's still teaching. Jesus continues to speak. Everyone turns back around and give to God the things that are God, that are God's. And the Pharisees and the Herodians said, like our kids respond today to truth, they all said, wait, what? That's what they said. Wait, what? They, they, they were not expecting that. They, they had the answer they wanted. Yes, pay the taxes. But now they're standing there in that wait, what moment. The smiles on their faces in an instant went away. The joy they had went away. Render to God the things that are God's, Jesus said. And it stopped them in their tracks. And that statement said today should stop everyone who hears it or reads it. It should make us all stop in our tracks. Why is this such a great statement? What is Jesus saying that is so deep, so profound, that when anyone hears it, they should stop in their tracks? Why should we do as the scriptures say and, and also do as they did that day? They marveled at him. 
Why should we marvel at such a simple statement as render to God the things that are God's? Because it's amazing when you put it in this context. First of all, Jesus is saying to the people, listen, I'm not going to give you any ammo to say I'm not paying taxes. You may not like what's going on with the Roman Empire. No excuses. Pay your taxes. You receive benefits from your taxes. Pay them. That, why are we worried about that? That's not important. Paying taxes is not what God is teaching us here. All those people back there. Go back to Jesus holding that coin. Whose image is on that coin? Tiberius, he made the coin. He put it in circulation. He has the right to them. He has a right to the tax. His image, he owns them. What, but what is even more clear? What is even more clear to all the people is the image on you. The image that is in each one of us. The image of God who made us all. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That means first and foremost that God has made us. He has put us in circulation. He has a right to us and expects us to return to him. We are made in his image. He owns us. Amen. So therefore, their comment, our comment, while we... Our, our, our commitment, their, their commitment, our commitment while we live on this earth under earthly rulers fits under an umbrella of our commitment to God. It all fits under our commitment to whose image we bear. You know, this text, we could teach on hypocrisy. Sure, we could teach that from this text. We could teach on government from this text. Sure, we could do that too. We could teach on taxes too, yes, but that's not what the main point is here. We always go back to chapter 1 as we're going through this book. We go back to chapter 1. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We filter everything that Mark has written through these verses, and we can see here in our text that Jesus is saying, I am the king, not him. I am establishing my kingdom, and entry into my kingdom is by repentance and faith. Render what is due to whose image you bear. Whose image do you bear? Entering into the kingdom of God is not by way of keeping man's law or paying taxes. We enter into the kingdom by repentance and faith. We enter into an everlasting kingdom, and that's the point here. Jesus says, pay your tax, yes, but that's not what is important here. The kingdom of these worlds were put here by God, yes, but keep them in their place. You have a responsibility to the governments of the world, yes, but what is more important? Your responsibility to God whose image you bear. We have to make sure we keep Christ first in our lives. So many times we put politics, the importance of government, above Jesus. Forget that stuff. Shut the news off. We need to be involved in our community and our government, but you know... Render to God the things of God. Make sure you got that down before you go to the other stuff. So we, has to, we have to ask ourselves, ourselves, do we marvel at God? 
Do we marvel at his word? Do we marvel at his teaching? Do we give to God what, what is his? You know, we're not talking about money here as some use this text to do. We're not talking about the money. What, what, so what do we give God? What do, what do we give? It's our heart. It's our praise. It's our love. That's what we render to God. That, that's a, a great self-examination right there. What do I give to God? Do I test God like the Pharisees do? Do I test him all the time? Do I say true statements about Jesus and then not give him what is due? Do I have just head knowledge like the Pharisees did but no heart knowledge? Then I, if I do, then I'm not giving God what is his. I'm not re rendering to God what is his. Stop testing God. Give your heart to Christ and trust him. Jesus is telling you today, stop testing me. Why do you test me? Repent and believe in the gospel. Time is now. Right now is the time to do that. Stop testing and begin marveling at Jesus and the wonderful work that he has done for us. He's the one who holds our life in his hands. Don't play games with him. That's what they did that day. They were playing games. Don't play games with the one who holds our life in his hands. Alistair Begg says, there is no refuge from God, but there is refuge in him. Today is the day to examine our hearts to make sure we have rendered to God what is his. If we, don't, if we do not take a stand on that perfect cornerstone, then that stone will be the stone that will crush us. When we render to God what is God, what is God's, that means that Jesus is using us to build his everlasting kingdom. It will be built and being built on him and his teaching. And we are part of it if we give God what is owed to him. Listen, we don't owe God hypocrisy. We don't owe him phony religion by coming to him with a bunch of different flattering statements and never truly acknowledging who he really is. What we do owe God, what we do owe him is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We owe him that. He's worthy of that, and he commands it. We owe him this. We owe him this right here, to listen to his son, to love his son, and to honor his son, and to believe in his son, and to embrace his son as our only hope and our only savior. We are to worship the beloved son that he is, the beloved son that he is, the one who was put on the cross to bear the punishment for our sins. That's what we owe him. That's what we render to him. We owe him worship because he is king. And the kingdom of God will reign forever and ever. No, how, no, no, no matter how many kingdoms that will come and go on this earth, Jesus is on his throne and his kingdom will reign. And knowing that, that should give us that peace that surpasses all understanding as we look at a world as we see in all the time saying, man, this world's falling apart. We should have peace in knowing that his kingdom will reign. The ultimate authority resided with God because we are created in his image. And so we have to ask ourselves, 
Whose image do we bear? If a coin bears Caesar's image, then that belongs, then they belong to Caesar. But for the ones who believe, we bear God's image and we belong to him. Amen.